Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, January 25th, 2019. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, who joins me today from Seattle, where he is reporting from the American Library Association Midwinter Meeting. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So here we are just a few weeks into January, Andrew, and the 2019 conference season is already well underway. You aren't the only one traveling this week for PW. Several colleagues of yours are in Albuquerque, New Mexico, for the American Booksellers Association's 14th Annual Winter Institute, which started on Tuesday this week. So what's the buzz you hear from your friends down there in Albuquerque? Yeah, you know, I, I think if there's one thing we can all cheer, it's the steady growth of the American Bookseller Association's Winter Institute, which this year is hosting more than 700 indie booksellers in Albuquerque. And as my colleague Claire Kirk rightly notes in her piece in PW, which is on the website now, uh, that's well beyond the once envisioned cap of 500 booksellers that the ABA had set 14 years ago at their first event, which was in Long Beach, California. But, you know, that growth is indicative of, of a great rebound by indie booksellers in America, uh, all of which is happening in the shadow of, you know, Amazon's explosive growth. And, you know, with more indie bookstores, well, we get bigger, more exciting Winter Institute meetings. In fact, of the 700 plus attendees in Albuquerque, 200 of those are first timers, and they're all on hand for four days of meetings, panels, and speakers. All right, then. So who are some of the speakers at this year's event, and what are they talking about there? Yeah, so uh, you know, among the highlights from Claire's reporting, which you can read on the PW website, and it will be in Monday's issue of the magazine as well, uh, the Independent Publishers Caucus convened for almost like a three-hour meeting, she reports. Uh, that's about 65 independent and small presses who are strategizing on how to best build up their presence in the marketplace. And, and one panel uh, featured Grove Atlantic publisher Morgan Entrican, $2 radio publisher Erica Obanoff and Akashic editorial director Ibrahim Ahmad. Uh, and they were discussing best practices as a small press. And Ahmad said something on that panel that we've been hearing more and more among small presses and that we've been reporting for a couple of years now. And that's that the playing field for publishing today is much more level than it's been in recent years. And that small presses should not be afraid to go head to head, as Morgan Entrican added, with the big five. Seven Stories publisher Dan Simon remarked that it's, you know, kind of cool that they could have this three-hour conversation with 65-plus independent publishers and not talk about Amazon and not talk about the big five. Uh, that's a sign of good health, Simon said. So it means that uh, publishers, small publishers' energies are focused in a very positive way. And I think that's a big takeaway this, this year's meeting. But, but just how good is that health, though, Andrew? Last week, the Authors Guild survey of writers sounded pretty dire, and yet this week, indie bookstores are celebrating. Why do you think there's such a contrast? Yeah, that, that's a really great point. You know, for the ABA, which has really flourished under Oren Teicher's leadership, they now number over 1,800 member stores as of last May with, I think, 2,470 locations. And that's up from about 1,400 members and 1,600 locations in 2009. That's a significant jump. And I think it really speaks to, you know, the value of indie publishers and indie bookstores in our reading ecosystem, especially at a time when Amazon and consolidation are always seem to to read about. Uh, and, you know, so much of this talk revolves around Amazon and the chain stores and consolidation. And I don't want to belittle that. That's a major issue, and rightly so. But at some point, 
I think we need to acknowledge that books are not like other products. You know, are they subject to market pressures? Absolutely, of course. Yes, they are. But what the growth of indie publishing and indie book selling tells me is that unlike, you know, the wailing that we're hearing from the Authors Guild about depressing, you know, incomes, American authors are not really facing an existential crisis. Well, at least not the existential crisis the Guild sees anyway. When CCC's Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese shares more news from the Authors Guild. I'm Christopher Keneally. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly and host of the new PW podcast, Publishers Weekly Insider. Each week, we'll talk to PW editors, authors, and other industry guests about the biggest and most exciting stories and books in the world of publishing. New episodes of PW Insider premiere every Friday. So listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwinsider or wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, January 25th, 2019, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me today as he does each week with the latest news from the world of publishing and reading. And Andrew, the U.S.-based Authors Guild has gotten quite a lot of attention this month for declaring a crisis among writers in America. This week, the Guild also doubled down on a couple of issues that involve libraries, also along with their U.K. counterparts, the Society of authors. Tell us what's going on there. Sure. So, you know, first off, the Authors Guild here in the U.S. announced that it is actually kicking off a national campaign in support of a public lending right in the United States. And we talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, In other words, the Guild's response to Amazon's crushing dominance in the U.S. is to try to enact a new federal bureaucracy that would pay writers small amounts for library lends. In a message to members, Authors Guild President James Gleek, who I have to say is an incredible writer who I admire greatly. In fact, I have respect for all of the Authors Guild officials. Gleek, in a message to members, noted that 35 countries, including the U.K., Every country in Europe, Canada, Israel, and Australia all have a PLR system and added that in the UK, more than 22,000 authors receive payments of up to 6,600 pounds a year. Uh, and he says that that's enough to make a real difference in some writer's ability to sustain a career. And you know, you could probably hear me shaking my head. <laughs> well, I don't know if the microphone is that sensitive, but I do know you have some questions about this. And indeed, we talked briefly last week about the PLR, the public lending right. You raised questions then about the Guild's decision to pursue it. So why do you take issue with Gleek's words uh, here? Well, I feel like, you know, those words are just not simply reflective of reality. You know, what they reflect is the Author Guild's almost religious belief that every use of a work should be remunerated to the author. But, you know, that's painfully myopic, especially in today's world. And the Guild hides some key details in that message to members. For example, you know, I looked at the data and only about 250 or so authors received the 6,600 pound payment uh, that James Gleek reported in 2017. And for those authors, let's face it, you know, that sum is not make or break. They're already doing quite well if they're getting you know, that many library lends. Meanwhile, nearly 17,000 of the 22,000 writers got less than 99 pounds. So that's hardly difference making. Meanwhile, if you look at UK public libraries, they're dying. 
They're absolutely left for dead. And while pennies are being diverted, you know, which adds up to big money, while pennies are being diverted to individual authors from the government, that less funding going to libraries means that those libraries are buying less books from publishers. And that's hurting reading culture in the UK. And in the words of one veteran British publisher who I interviewed this week, it's a crippling development. Those are sales that library, that publishers used to depend on, that authors benefited from too, that are just not happening anymore. And then if you look at the European countries, the Gleek sites, you know, the PLR works within a cultural regime in these smaller European countries uh, where writers are largely supported by their governments. They get cultural grants. And of course, you know, those countries are largely socialized. Something I don't think is ever going to happen in the U.S. We'll just leave it at that. You know, I can't imagine in a country where we can't even fund the NEA consistently that we're going to put together this new bureaucracy to divert pennies to authors. I just don't see that happening. You know, U.S. public libraries they're the best in the world. You know, the U.S. is a major cultural exporter because of this. You know, our literary culture is, despite obvious issues right now, is pretty much thriving. So, you know, I could go on forever about this. I'm just going to stop here and say what really bothers me about all of this is that the Guild seems to have taken a survey about writer income and just right away linked it to libraries and free lending without really any data to support it. You know, we have the, the study of author incomes, but where's the study of the PLR, right? There, I don't see any white paper on the PLR and what its impact is and how it functions in other countries. So why are we launching a policy initiative around this now? It really just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Last Friday, Andrew, in your Week in the Libraries column, you asked whether a nascent program objected to by the Guild called Controlled Digital Lending would lead to the next Google Book lawsuit. And almost on cue, the Society of Authors in the UK joined the Authors Guild and has actually threatened to sue over the issue. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so the UK-based Society of Authors wrote to the Internet Archive over its open library project and actually threatened a lawsuit if UK books were not removed. Now, they gave the archive until February 1 to respond. And again, you can probably hear me shaking my head. So you know, just as a refresher, we talked about it a little bit last week, but Controlled digital lending is a program where a library or a nonprofit, such as the Authors Guild, will take a, a print book that they've legally acquired, scan it, seal that copy away, often in a shipping container, and then lend the scan on a one-for-one -one basis, just like they would the print book. Uh, and yes, some of the books that are in this un, under these programs are still under copyright. Uh, this is an issue that last week the, the Authors Guild called out, or was it two weeks ago now, or first week of January, called out as being you know illegal against the law. Are there some legitimate legal concerns here, some legitimate copyright issues here? Yeah, I think so. I think there certainly is a basis for some discussion about the program. Uh, and I know for a fact that librarians are approaching the practice with a great deal of caution. But a lawsuit over this from the Society of Authors would just be a terrible idea. And I'll give you a few reasons why. First, because I encourage you to actually go to the Internet Archive's Open Library Project and set up an account and take a look at what we're talking about. We're talking about scans, these really crappy, old, yellowish scans, PDFs that don't look very good, especially on a phone. Yes, they're readable, and they're there for scholars and people to refer to, and the books that are scanned and available are older. Most of them, are, almost all of them, are out of print or out of stock. It's hard to see that these scans are depriving anyone of income. You know, no publisher is really rushing to put these books back into print. And no publisher would actually look at these scans as a reason not to reprint a book. There really is 
no actual harm here that I can see, only harm to an ideal, the ideal that, that every use has to be permissioned and paid for. On the other hand, the library ebook market is a farce these days. I'm sorry, but we've got triple, quadruple high prices that libraries pay compared to what consumers pay. Restrictions where these books can only be held for a year at a time before they have to be relicensed. You know, the, the library ebook market I'm just going to come out and say it. it's begging for an FTC inquiry here. There are so many things that I think need to be looked into. It's just not functioning as efficiently as it could. So as we've seen with so many other lawsuits, the Society of Authors may think that it's here litigating illegal copying, but what they're likely to find out is that they're litigating a much, much bigger issue that involves a market failure. And these suits always take time. They always take money. They never seem to be open and shut, and they never seem to go the way we think they're going to go. Now, here's the caveat. If the Society of Authors, which is UK-based, sues in the UK, maybe it's a different lawsuit entirely. Maybe it's settled. Maybe they win an injunction. But they can't really sue in the US, thanks to the Authors Guild, because our listeners will remember in the Google case, the Authors Guild was actually denied standing in that suit, which means that individual copyright owners actually have to come forward and file a suit. And that, of course, you know, the, the Guild can still support the lawsuit and still write the checks, but I think it fundamentally changes the arc of the suit if individual copyright owners have to sign up to sue libraries and show their harm. But again, here's the real problem. The real problem facing writers today, I think, is obvious pretty much to anyone. And those issues, I think, are actually pretty ripe for battle. We're talking about the, the growth of Amazon and their, their, their thirst to just dominate the market. Uh, we're talking about consolidation and publishing. So why are these organizations continuing to sue their allies in libraries, the people who are keeping reading culture afloat, who are donating public funds to keeping people reading? especially over these crappy PDF scans or in the case of Google and the index that actually helped them or so every court in the land found. You know, when the Google case finally ended, James Grimmelman, the outstanding Cornell lawyer, uh, who was a, a touchstone for me during that suit, offered a really great insight. And you know, I'm going to quote him again here. Hold on. I picked this up and I printed it out to read it to you. He, he told me that the Authors Guild had this point of principle about what copyright stands for, and somehow they crossed that in their heads with the economic condition of authors today, and they held up Google as this egregious example of some larger trends in tech and in copyright. But the principle at issue in the Google case, even if the Guild had won, wasn't going to make a whit of difference to those trends. Well, it seems like the Google case ended a while ago, but the thinking that led to that case is alive and well at the Authors Guild, and I just hope we don't wind up in another Google case situation. We appreciate your analysis. Andrew Albanese, senior writer of Publishers Weekly, joins us every week on Beyond the Book. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Have a great time there in Seattle. My pleasure, as always. Coming next on Beyond the Book, imagine a digital ledger that is permanent and irreversible, and you will begin to understand why blockchain promises so much for the online world. With blockchain, transparency and certainty are guaranteed for every e-transaction. The platform that underlines Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, blockchain is already taking a role in supply chain management, music licensing, and even healthcare record keeping. Blockchain enthusiasts expect publishing will soon Soon follow. Reina Diorio, co-founder and CEO of Creative Mint, asserts that blockchain will bring visibility to the creative supply chain and ensure fair treatment for authors, artists, and other creators. In fact, she says blockchain can put in practice a digital version of the golden rule. Rights transactions happen for 
creative works in myriad ways. You know, you obviously have your book deal, and then you have your your video deal, and you have your ed tech licensing deal, or your video game deal, or your merchandising deal. All of those deals can be committed to smart contracts that then reside in a blockchain for all to see. So there's checks and balances built into the system. My background is a lawyer, uh, Chris, and in my contracts class, our professor said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And so what we're doing is we're casting a light on the whole industry. So imagine all of our partners are going to be able to see with great degree of granularity all of the numbers for a brand. So a publishing partner is going to be able to see how the toy sales are going and how the ed tech licensing deals are going and how you know, the video game sales are going. And they can adjust their product offering because of that. A digital golden rule made possible by blockchain. Next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center. Our co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The complete Beyond the Book podcast archive is available at beyondthebook.com. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on CCC's Beyond the Book.